Let us turn to the book of 1 Kings chapter 8, starting with the verse 62, read through to the end of the chapter. So 1 Kings 8, 62 through 66. Beginning to read, with, <clears throat> read the word of God, hear the word of God. Then the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifices before the Lord. And Solomon offered a sacrifice of peace offerings, which he offered to the Lord, 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the children of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. On the same day, the king consecrated the middle of the court that was in front of the house of the Lord, for there he offered burnt offerings, grain offerings, and the fat of the peace offerings, because the bronze altar that was before the Lord was too small to receive the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the fat of peace offerings. At that time Solomon held a feast, and all Israel with him, a great assembly from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt, before the Lord our God, seven days and seven more days, 14 days. On the eighth day, he sent the people away, and they blessed the king and went, uh, went to their tents, joyful and glad of heart for all the good that the Lord had done for his servant David and for Israel, his people. The title of the sermon this morning is uh, Solomon's Supper. And it's uh, providential that we come to this text on a supper that Solomon had in this day on account of the fact that we come to the Lord on this day uh, with the purpose of having a supper ourselves. The, the famous supper, the one that Jesus gave to the church and told us to use until he came again, namely the Lord's Supper or what we call communion. And so we have these two suppers, and it's just amazing when you see, I hope you will see, and I hope you'll think it's as amazing as I do, to see the, um, the ironies or the providences uh, of connection here that we find in this text with what we're doing today. Um, the, the text does not fully explain the situation in the, uh, in the, the last verse we read, it says that, uh, that uh, on, the, on this eighth day, after this eighth day, uh, when Solomon sent the people away, uh, that it says at the end of the verse, and they blessed the king and went to their tents, joyful and glad of heart for all the good that the Lord had done for his servant David and for Israel, his people. Well, we know that this was the seventh month in which they were operating here. And it just so happens that this was the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, or the the month of the Feast of Tabernacles, the seventh month of the year. So that's why they went to their tents, because they had all come to Israel. Uh, they had all come to Jerusalem, as they were commanded in the book of Leviticus, for this last or third feast of the year. Now, there's not a whole lot made of that in the text, but uh, but you'll see this, this rather confusing part in verse 65, where it talks about that they, they had a feast for seven days and then seven more days, 14 days in all. And uh, then on the eighth day, he sent the people away. But it's kind of confusing there. What, 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 how do you figure this, these seven days here and seven days there? Well, it's because 
Solomon set to dedicate uh, the temple uh, in this time when there was a national feast going on. And he couldn't desecrate the feast for the sake of the dedication of the temple, but there was a special joy in the air because the temple was finally built and constructed and finished just before this third feast of the year. Now, when we look and when we think about the Feast of Tabernacles, it's also called the Feast of Ingathering because it, it came at the end of the growing season and it was the harvest. It was a coordinated harvest of the agriculture of that area, uh, both in terms of crops that were grown in the ground, in terms of the olives uh, that, were, that were grown, and in terms of the wine that was made uh, from the grapes. And so there were three great vintages, if you will, at this time of the year uh, uh, that then were celebrated <clears throat> with the Feast of Ingathering. They were, in, they were gathering together. It was the harvest time, and which is ironic because we ourselves at this time of the year are just past that ourselves. We just celebrated Thanksgiving in November, which is kind of coordinate with this idea um, that Israel had, that Israel was commanded to do by Moses and, uh, and God through Moses. And so um, this feast came, and uh, the, through the labors to, to construct the temple, all of that was coming together at this time of the year. And obviously, it was the providence of God that this that this happened like this. You think of all the inspired thoughts that were put into to David and Solomon and the building of this temple. David, of course, is now gone. He's dead, um, and uh, and so Solomon is the king now, and he's doing all of this sort of thing to bring about this uh, the, the celebration, the, well, the, the completion of the temple, then the celebration of the temple. And, uh, and so there was this fantastic celebration that was made during this time. Now, um, you might think, you might raise, you might say to yourself, well, this says that Solomon made these sacrifices. Um, it says in verse 63, Solomon offered a sacrifice of peace offering, which he offered to the Lord, 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. It's a huge number of animals. Now, of course, this was not done every day. This was over the 14 days of this celebration, of this special celebration that was separate from the Feast of Ingathering. But um, you might be tempted to think here that Solomon was sinning in the same way that King Saul did when Saul usurped the rights of the priest and offered sacrifices himself. Remember that in the, in the scriptures. But there's no hint of that in the scriptures. So when it says that Solomon did this, the, the idea most commentators simply say is that, that Solomon, it doesn't mean that he usurped the role of the priest. He was simply, um, he was simply over the, the priesthood and this, this additional celebration of the dedication of the temple. And uh, so he, 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 uh, he directed the, the priests how they would do this special celebration. But the priests themselves did all the sacrificing and that kind of thing. And then what happened was that they started this, pre, this, this feast a week before the Great Day of Atonement. Uh, the Great Day of Atonement was, uh, ended the year. Uh, in, the, in a, a very spiritual way, similar to the way the year would be good, they begin for them in, with uh, Passover 
in the spring. And and so um, these things would be uh, were scheduled and they and they went off. And um, and uh, so Solomon, uh, under the uh, inspiration of God, because Solomon was a prophet too, he wrote books of the Bible. And uh, so under the inspiration of God, Solomon started this operation. And uh, a week before, uh, then on the, the, the Day of Atonement, he broke from the this dedication of the temple. Uh, they, uh, they, they had the, day, the, the great Day of Atonement. On that day, um, there was uh, there were special sacrifices made. Uh, the the priest, the high priest, would go into the holy of holies on this day, and so the the temple having been constructed and dedicated. And of course, all, all of these details are not covered in this text. We just get the sort of the, the bare details here. But um, on the on the holy on the on the day of atonement, the high priest would would go into the Holy of Holies, but he wouldn't go into the Holy of Holies dressed in his priestly garb as normal. The, the Lord had directed on the, day, on the Day of Atonement that the high priest would strip off all of these more fancy garments and he would just wear a, a plain white garment signifying humiliation. And he would go into the Holy of Holies, minister before the Lord, uh, and... Uh, and then, uh, then come out and remember this was the day in which the priest had a rope tied to his ankle he went, when he went into the Holy of Holies because uh, there was always the fear, there was always the possibility that the high priest would be struck down dead when he went into the Holy of Holies for some, whatever reason, for his own sin, for his lack of uh, concern for how he entered the Holy of Holies. Remember there were people that were killed when the ark was uh, touched in an ungodly way, an unholy way. And so the high priest with his white garment on would go into the Holy of Holies, and this was the first time this happened. It was a very august moment. He went in and ministered as God had directed the high priest to do on the, on the Day of Atonement. And then he came out, and there were two, after the sacrifices that were made, there were two goats that were selected. And there was a, they cast the lots on the two goats for who would be selected. One goat was slaughtered immediately for the people in a special way. The other goat, the high priest would put his hands upon the goat and uh, impute all of the sins of Israel, the people of Israel, all of the sins of the people of Israel upon that goat. And then the goat would be driven out, out of the city as, as something that could not be uh, countenanced before the presence of the Lord because of its toxicity. And, uh, and then uh, they would finish with the Day of Atonement with the rest of what was done there, the evening sacrifices and that sort of thing. And then the very next day, the Feast of Ingathering would take place. And the Feast of Ingathering, and you get a sense of that in, at the end of this text, the Feast of Ingathering was a day of great joy. Just in the same way that we celebrate Thanksgiving, and, the, and especially when we were a more agrarian society where we were doing the crops ourselves, harvesting them. So the people of this day were glad and they, they were overjoyed with the celebration that was to be, uh, that was to be had. And, and so that you get just a sense of that in the, at the end of this passage where it says that on the eighth day he sent the people away and they blessed the king and went to their tents joyful and glad of heart for all the good that the Lord had done. So you see here this, this relationship between 
the atonement between the animals that were sacrificed, between the great day of atonement, and then this time of joy that was had by the people. And hopefully, when we come to the Lord's Supper, we have a sense of that same thing, that same two-part process, whereby we see that the elements on the table signify and seal the great work that was done by Christ, and then we, as, we, as we partake of that, we enjoy it in our hearts. It's a spiritual thing, an intimate thing, where we, we really come away with the, the sense that we should be happy people on account of what God has done. And so um, you see that um, taken up here with this text, and, um, and you see something of it, and you see the relationship between that and, and the Lord's Supper. Um, in, uh, <clears throat> in the New Testament era, uh, there was no more, after Christ's sacrifice, there was no more spilling of blood. There was no more animal sacrifice. It was over. It was finished, the Bible says. So we have a bloodless uh, food set before us. And in the same way that the Apostle Paul and the other apostles rejoiced at the finished work of Christ, which runs so much counter, so totally counter the idea of Rome and the ongoing sacrifice of the Mass, just the, the total, the total uh, uh, momentum of the New Testament is contrary to the Mass and its theology. And yet, and yet that was what, that's still the core of Roman Catholicism. And uh, people often wonder, what, what, is this, what are these superficial differences between Protestantism and Catholicism? Why, don't, why aren't the Protestants more friendly toward Rome? Why can't we all get along together? Well, you see, uh, there's a total contradiction between the two theologies and the two ideas. We celebrate the, uh, the finished work of Christ. We, felt we celebrate the sufficiency of the work of Christ. We celebrate the greatness of the work of Christ and its effect then upon the redemption of both the elect and the whole creation as John Bunyan saw uh, as he uh, wrote uh, his Paradise Lost and then Paradise Regained. We'll be having the, the, sun, the class, uh, church history class afterwards that we just started on the Puritans. And uh, we'll, today there's a, a reference to John Bunyan. He was a great preacher uh, before, uh, before even his uh, fame for these other things. And so... Uh, uh, he rejoiced, and the people of that day rejoiced in the work, the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> now, um, when we, I think we we have a sense of this sort of in our in our instincts when we when we when we relate meals to joy and happiness. If you think of family meals that you've had, the, the, I guess the problem is that our family meals are nothing in comparison, uh, ultimately nothing by comparison to what happened here uh, with Israel and what happened with the, the work of Christ. When we, when we meet for our meals, we often will look around and there's Uncle Joe over there who is having problems, maybe a divorce from Aunt uh, Eileen, 
uh, and uh, we see, we, as we look at the, our cousins at the table, we see this cousin is going this way and that cousin is going that way. In our, in our own family, we had a number of, of, of gross sins that were going on in our larger family between all of the children. My father had three sisters, and so there were four families, and they were all, uh, all many children involved in them. So, you know, you could, at the same time that you rejoiced, that you had a time, an occasion for a family celebration, you could also see lots of, uh, lots of problems involved. But at this time for Israel, uh, yes, uh, superficially there were problems still, but there was a gladness on the part of the people because of, the, of what God had allowed David and Solomon to do. And I've made a great point of the fact that, that in Solomon's reign, there is this coordination between what God told us to do with the creation, which is done in the six days, and that which God told us to do in the church, which is summarized in the seventh day. And uh, with David and Solomon, you don't have this separation. You know, in, in, in Genesis chapter 4, it talks about how the children of Cain went, uh, went, uh, began to depart from the Lord and they walked away. And they denied the Lord his glory. And they, they built their lives like we do today, secularly, uh, without having God in the midst of them. And so Genesis 4 talks about how this, the family of disobedience, uh, ironically, uh, charged ahead with the cultural endeavors that God had given them to do. And they reached some level of glory, culturally or superficially, uh, having to do with metallurgy and music and building a city and these kinds of things. And many people will come to Genesis 4 and they'll, they'll say, well, how can God record this in the Bible? And why does God not condemn it more? Uh, because this part of the family was being so deviant. And the, the secret is that, that God has ordained that, these, that there will be two tracks of human society or human life, uh, one cultural and one cultic, one cultural or sixth day, one seventh day. And sometimes the two tracks come very close together and oftentimes they, they go way apart. We have, we, have, uh, we have civilizations like Egypt and Babylon who achieved far more cultural glory than Israel did in their own way, uh, despite the fact that Israel obtained much more glory than they ultimately. And this was one of the occasions where the whole world... <clears throat> had stopped and took notice of the, both the religious and the cultural grandeur of the Davidic Solomonic reigns. And there was peace in the Middle East, unlike today, because the son of David reigned upon the throne. There was joy. There was uh, prosperity. People came to Israel to pay tribute to uh, to, to Solomon as, as the king. Look at all of these animals that were slain. The society was so prosperous at this time that you can have this, these monstrous numbers of animal sacrifice without it leading the people into starvation or deprivation even. And so it's an amazing time. And, uh, and at this time where the, 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 the secular, what you call the secular or six-day culture of Israel achieved such an ascendancy. It was at this time also that God gave and enabled them to finish the temple so that the 
the religion of Zion, so that the Old Testament religion could be got, brought to its own crescendo. And so at this time, there was a crescendo both of cult and culture that was amazing, and which gives us a foretaste of heaven in the future, and what will come in the latter days, when we are all resurrected above, and when, we, when the new heavens and the new earth are instituted, and uh, we see what God has stored for us uh, on that occasion. So I want you to think, as we think about this scripture, we think about the meal today, I want you to think about the excitement of the providence of all of this happening. That's part of the reason why the people were so happy. They, they recognized that God had done a marvelous thing. And so they were excited that the temple was finished. They were excited that the land of Israel was prosperous. They were excited that Solomon reigned and there were no civil wars going on or no problems like that. They were excited about the providence that God had brought them to. And, uh, and uh, we should see today the, 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 their, their excitement of the coincidence of this, the Feast of Ingathering here, the, that feast and the, and the sacrifices and the, and the dedication of the temple. We should be excited about the coincidence that all of these things kind of came together at this time under King Solomon. And we should then be excited for the coincidence of our meal today, that we come and that we can celebrate the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we can meditate upon that individually, and we all ought to have a testimony in our hearts of how God has worked with us, that God brought us from death to life, that God began to show us the whole kingdom of God of which we were not aware in our unconverted state. Well, when we come to the place where we rejoice about the kingdom of God, when we have a special sensitivity toward it, both the king and the kingdom, and should we not rejoice about that? And should we not see that it's a special thing? And so we should, we should rejoice over this coincidence in our lives and the fact that in the same way that God, God led Solomon to have this feast, this meal in that day, he leads us in the New, our New Testament days to have a similar feast. It's a wonderful thing. And uh, all the joy that we might know in our earthly lives with eating a wonderful meal together all of that joy is amplified 10 times over because we eat today. We don't eat to merely for, for merely caloric content or even the content of the, uh, the physiological nourishment that, that we would take with a common meal. But we, we celebrate today with Christ's special mercy. He comes to us and he promises us, if you eat and drink these things in faith, that I will, I will come to you and I will strengthen you and I will help you. Do we not, all of us, feel special weaknesses here and there in our lives? There are so many things that we're bewildered by. Our, our, our futures, our providence, our health, our death, all of these kinds of things. And yet if we have the Lord, he promises to walk with us. He tells us, I am your shepherd. I will take care of you. You're like wandering sheep that don't really know where they're going. But I am the shepherd. I will take care of the herd, the flock, I mean. I will, I will usher you in and where I would have you to go. And the place that we're going is green pastures where there is abundant water to drink. And all of that is symbolized in this meal that we are about to partake. I think especially here in terms of application, 
above and beyond these excitements is the, uh, the intimacy of, that the Lord gives us. You know, the Lord is intimate with, with his church. He compares, in the book, book of Ephesians, he compares uh, the intimacy that he has with, his ch- with the church with the intimacy of a husband and a wife. In uh, Ephesians, I think it's 5. Uh, he makes a direct comparison between, and he's talking about the sexual relationship at that time between husband and wife, and he says, so it is with, uh, with Christ and the church. This time of communion is a special time of spiritual communion, and we all ought to seek it in our lives. We ought to come to the table with that purpose, asking the Lord, please, Lord, strengthen me in my inner being. Meet me with thy spirit. Help me to have a special sense of the power of Christ for me and for us, that we might go forward with blessing from this meal. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we pray that we might entertain just a, a portion of the excitement of the people of God on, on this occasion when, uh, when as they were about to partake of the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Ingathering and then this further week that was that came after, we pray that we would enjoy, have some sense of the enjoyment that the people of God had in that day, which is brought forward so much in the last verse that we read in verse 66, where they blessed the king and they went to their tents joyful and glad of heart for all the good that the Lord had done for his servant David and for Israel, his people. And now we look on this backwardly, O Lord, because this the work that God has done is not just prophetic in the sense regarding the lamb who was to come. But we look at it in, with hindsight because the lamb has come. Uh, his, his blood has been spilt. His, the penalty was paid. He took all of the righteousness of his life and he let it be crucified. But that righteousness could not be held by death. And so he rose up again from the dead. And then the glorious resurrection and ascension, he shows and displays his power over the powers of this world, even the powers of death. And so we pray, O Lord, that we might have some enjoyment of this as we commune with thee. O God, be our God. Be our Christ. Be our spirit, O Lord. Bless us, O triune God. We need thee. Our faith is weak. Bless us, O Lord, in thy strength that we might go forth to do exploits before thy face, even in this fallen world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let us now hear the words of institution before the supper as we have them printed in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where Paul wrote, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after after supper, saying, The cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do 
as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. The church has been uh, given these instructions from the time of uh, the Apostle Paul uh, on down to today. Uh, We have a theological warrant for it, which we've talked about, and and then we have a a fencing of the table, which we're supposed to do. But in terms of the theological warrant, the, uh, our book of worship tells us that our Lord Jesus Christ instituted the Lord's Supper as an ordinance to be observed by his church until he come again, comes again. It is not a re-sacrificing of Christ, but is a remembrance of the once-for-all sacrifice of himself and his death for our sins. Nor is it a mere memorial to Christ's sacrifice. It is a means of grace by which God feeds us with the crucified resurrected, exalted Christ. He does so by his Holy Spirit through faith. Thus he strengthens us in our warfare against sin and in our endeavors to serve him in holiness. The sacrament further signifies and seals the forgiveness of our sins and our nourishment and growth in Christ. The, The bread and wine represent the crucified body and shed blood of the Savior which he gave for his people. In this sacrament, God confirms that he is faithful and true to fulfill the promises of his covenant, and he calls us to deeper gratitude for our salvation, to renewed consecration, and to more faithful obedience. The supper is also a bond and pledge of the communion that believers have with him and with each other as members of his mystical body. As we come to the Lord's table, we humbly resolve to deny ourselves to crucify the sin that is within us, to resist the devil, and to follow Christ as becomes those who bear his name. It is my privilege as a minister of the gospel to invite all who are in the, or, or, who have a right standing with God through Christ and his church through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to come to the to Lord's table. If you have received Christ and are resting upon him alone for salvation, as he has offered you in the gospel, If you are a baptized professing communicant member in good standing in a church that professes the gospel of God's free grace in Jesus Christ, and if you live penitently and seek to walk in godliness before the Lord, then this supper is for you. And I invite you in Christ's name to eat the bread and drink the cup. At the same time, God's word says, whoever shall eat this bread and drink the cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of this cup. This warning is not aimed to keep the humble and contrite from the table of the Lord as if it were for those who were free from sin. On the contrary, in fact, it is for sinners that our Lord gives the supper as a means of grace. Let us examine our minds then and hearts to determine whether such discernment is ours to the end that we may partake to the glory of God and uh, to our growth 
in the grace of Christ. Let us uh, let us pray. Our Father and our God, we pray that <clears throat> we would have a, 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 a sense of thy law that thou hast given us in thy word so that we can uh, rightly um, judge ourselves and evaluate ourselves as we consider thy law, O Lord, beginning with thou shalt have no other gods before me. As we go through these nine laws that we have in our minds, we pray that thou wouldst show us our, how much need we have of thee at every point of those laws. Uh, we do not love thee with all of our heart and soul and mind. We, we do not do that in this life. That will not be our joy until heaven. So we pray that thou wouldst forgive us of our lackadaisical worship, of our, of our reticence to call upon thee, even our reticence to separate the affairs of this world and the things that confuse us and boggle our minds uh, from the thing that we have set before us, namely to commune with thee. We pray, O Lord, though, that you would forgive us of all of these sins, of the lusts of our hearts, of the of the, the lack of sabbatical observance, uh, of the lack of a love for each other, of the protection of each other, which is the antithesis of uh, murder from which we are prohibited. We pray, O Lord, that thou wouldst meet us at every point of this ethical compass and forgive us of our sin. Show us brightly how our Lord Jesus fulfilled each point of this ethical compass, how there was not one commandment where he deviated or wandered. There was not one day of worship uh, in which he faltered. There was not one ethical ought that he neglected. And having done all these things in total and complete righteousness, he then offers up the sparkling record of righteousness to us that we might have it by faith not by our own possession of the flesh, but by possession by faith, by the Spirit. So we pray, O Lord, that these things, being ours, make us fit for this table, for this meal. Bless us, O Lord, in Jesus, in his sacrifice, in his life of righteousness. Bless us, O Lord, in the Beloved, that we might be perfect in him. In his name we pray, amen.